Welcome, O oh you happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Yes, you heroic men, and you who endure the scorching days of summer, as well as the frigid days of winter, going to work early every morning regardless of the weather, disciplining yourself and improving yourself, watching over your spouse and children if you have them, and taking care of business, generating cash flow, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You who ignore your heart's desire to indulge your body's seductive whisper. Instead, you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers built. The barbarians know well that even after they destroy the civilization you built as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it, rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow, you gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and more, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience that I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that's another day of privilege for me. Because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. No, you have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem, Invictus, ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. Exactly. Well, let's uh, do a quick little Tesla car update, shall we? It's sort of an ongoing theme of the show because uh, it illustrates so much. I've said before that uh, a Tesla is a firm whose products 
are better than their stocks as an investment. And right now, many of you, at the time I'm recording this, uh, Tesla's stock is up over 550 approaching $600. Um, many of you are thinking to yourself, well, so much for our rabbi. What does he know? I bought Tesla in October for $275, and November, December, January, barely three months later, the price is approaching $600. I know what I'm doing. Don't listen to that nice saying rabbi who is so bearish on Tesla stock. Me? Well, I'd still sell short. Why? Why is it that I'm not jumping on the bandwagon and telling myself, yes, Tesla's going up to 800, maybe even 900, and give it four or five years, it's going to be a $5,000 stock. Why am I not joining that? Why do I still think that um, it's heading down? Not today, and maybe not tomorrow, but uh, I'm not talking years. I'm not even talking months. I'm talking less than that. Now, I will be honest here and tell you that uh, if I end up right and uh, Tesla stock goes down to where I think it probably belongs, and I'm not going to tell you what that figure is just now. I'll, I'll share it some other time. But uh, if I end up right, you can be quite sure that I will remind you regularly of my prescience. But if, on the other hand, Tesla just keeps on climbing with the stock soaring higher and higher, well, I'll probably just start talking about it. But why am I still um, not confident? Why do I still believe that that price is uh, not going to be sustained? Well, uh, firstly, for one thing, the company is hugely dependent on the charisma of one man, Elon Musk. And I'm not entirely sure that he's stable. Now, look, I understand. This is a man who played a founding role in PayPal, right? A huge, successful uh, online payments firm. And um, he, uh, he's unquestionably very, very competent. But at the same time, I just don't know how stable he is. I also don't know that you can run a large multinational car company and a boring company for doing uh, tunnels underground and SpaceX for taking over rockets uh, delivery from NASA. Can one person do all of that? Is he, in fact, such a brilliant coordinator and delegator and such a trained management expert that he can? Now, you know that uh, I have long been a fan of Carlos Ghosn, the former head of Nissan Renault, whom the Japanese arrested and who famously escaped in a large box. And uh, I think he was exactly right to have done that. And um, if he were in charge of Tesla, I may well feel differently about it. But uh, he's not. 
He's basically, for the moment, retired, living in Beirut, Lebanon, just out on the outskirts of Beirut. And so uh, uh, Elon Musk remains in charge at Tesla. And, um, and the stock went, as I say, in October, it went from $250 to $300. And now uh, it's approaching $600 as I'm preparing this show. Um, and last May, less than a year ago, it was under $200. So what has accounted for it uh, shooting up so high? Um, is it that they are making vast numbers of cars and their number of employees has climbed? Look, uh, Tesla has under 50,000 workers working for them. The Ford Motor Company has about 200,000 working for them, right? Four times as many. Uh, Tesla sold about 300,000 cars last year, and uh, um, and uh, Ford sold about 6 million cars last year. That's 20 times more cars sold by Ford. And I'm mentioning Ford because in this little run-up of value where the Tesla stock has shot up to six, nearly 600, uh, the the uh, capital value of the company, which is the share price multiplied by the outstanding shares, basically uh, something of a picture of what the company is worth or what investors think it's worth, um, it's now exceeded Ford. So Ford has uh, four times as many workers, sells 20 times more cars a year, and its cap, its market cap is about 33 billion versus what Tesla just hit, which is 100 billion. So you're telling me that Tesla is worth three times what Ford is worth, even though Ford sold um, 20 times more cars and has four times as many workers. It also uh, suggests that uh, the market values Tesla as more valuable than the Volkswagen conglomerate. Uh, they sold 10 million cars last year. Ford sold 6 million. And Tesla, that sold 300,000, is worth more than all of those. Now, I understand what uh, what people say, right? People say, well, look at Netflix. Netflix is worth so much. Uh, what about all those companies that own movie theaters? Why is, t why is Netflix owns, oh, uh, have such a high cap market cap compared to them? It's because today technology rules. That's what this is all about. Technology rules. And so if you want to own a, uh, a theater, good luck to you. But if you could own Netflix's licensing arrangements and uh, streaming capability, well, I think that that proves it, right? Or why does Uber have a market cap more than so many old taxi companies, right? Technology rules. So, Lappin, you just have to get your head around this, okay? You're comparing an old-fashioned company like Ford uh, with a high-tech company like Tesla. Um, that doesn't really hold a lot of water with me because technology is just how it does what it does. 
Bottom line is that a car company has to make and sell cars. In other words, there have to be enough people who like the cars that they make to want to buy them, and the company has to maybe have the capacity to make those cars. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I think Tesla cars are extremely cool, <laughs> no question about it. I totally get that. But, um, and uh, I, look, I, I do understand that. But there are a couple of things that still bother me. When you get right down to it, um, well, Okay, so Tesla basically got going big, big time in about 2012. Now, uh, Tesla gives an eight-year warranty on their battery life, which is very impressive, by the way. I wish I had an eight-year warranty on my cell phone battery life, which you're not going to get, right? You're not going to get eight years. Why? What happens? What happens with your cell phone battery? made with exactly the same technology in all those hundreds and hundreds of batteries packed in the Tesla floor pan, uh, making up this big uh, 60 or 80 kilowatt battery. Well, um, it's a lithium-ion technology. And lithium-ion technology, like all battery technology at the moment, has a tendency to, um, as time goes by, have the ability to retain less and less of a charge. And by the way, something I've discovered is that a lot of people don't know. You know, people talk about, oh, we've got to save the planet and get rid of carbon. We've got to stop burning fossil fuels. We've got to switch over to electric cars. I've asked a number of people this question. And I've said to them, are batteries energy sources or storage devices? And I can't tell you how many people uh, tell me battery are, batteries are energy sources. That's not true. A battery is nothing but a storage device. You've somehow still got to fill it with the energy, namely electricity, that'll drive the car. And so when you plug that into your wall socket in your garage, by the way, if you do that, it'll take you about three or four days to fully charge your Tesla. You need to install a 240 volt uh, socket that'll run you about um, between two and three thousand dollars in electricians costs in most parts of the country just telling you that but um, uh, you have to still charge it up right and that electricity has to be generated somewhere there isn't a free lunch as economist Milton Friedman once said nothing is for nothing and so um, now what happens on your cell phone? Well, after you've owned it for a little while, and I don't know if you plug in your cell phone to charge every night, but if you do, uh, let's say you plug it in at um, you know, 11 o'clock at night, and uh, it's fully charged by about 3 or 4 in the morning. Meanwhile, you're going to leave it on the charger till 6. Right? Is that good for your cell phone? And is it good for the battery to be charged up all the way? Now, when you plug your Tesla in, it will only charge to 80% in order to give it a longer battery life. But that means your range is lower. And so Tesla owners learn that if they are anticipating a day of a lot of driving, they will uh, hit the screen 
and override the default and tell the uh, the car please charge up to a hundred percent knowing full well that that is going to impact the life of the battery now what do you do when you get to a point when your cell phone uh, won't keep a charge all day and by three o'clock in the afternoon uh, you're you're down to one bar of battery life and it's showing little red warnings right uh, you now got to quickly look for a charger. It's irritating. And pretty soon you either take it in and have them replace the battery or you just buy a new phone. That's what people do because the battery is crucial. I would predict, right, cars born, bought in 2012 are now coming to the end of their warranty. But long before they come to the end of their warranty, they're going to start noticing uh, declining uh, durance, endurance on the battery. Now, look, Tesla is brilliant. They cool their battery in the summer because one of the worst enemies of battery life is temperature, either too hot or too cold. And um, if, as I, I said once before, one of the reasons I wouldn't buy a Tesla is that uh, I don't want to be in a snowstorm and the traffic crawling along, coming to a standstill as two-wheel drive cars in front of me get stuck and stranded, and I'm just watching the uh, meter on my Tesla showing less and less battery life, and I decide I better turn off the heater because that uses up a lot of battery life. Uh, Tesla's very good about coddling their batteries. They cool them in the summer. Yeah, they do. They have a cooling system under the floor of the car to cool the battery. They have a, heat, a heating system in winter to keep the battery warm. And they do everything possible to give the battery longer life. Brilliant. All very, very clever. But um, here we are. I think the, the bills on the batteries are coming due. What does it cost if you own a Tesla and it's starting to just drive you nuts? Because when you bought the car, you used to know that you could do a, a full day of, of heavy travel without any worries. But now you're finding by the early afternoon, you've got to start getting nervous about your battery capacity. All that means is that uh, your battery is, has lost a good deal of its storage. And after a few years, uh, a battery may well be down to 60 or 70% of its storage capacity. So at that point, you're starting to get a bit irritated. You say, I think I'm going to replace the battery. Well, what does it cost to replace a Tesla battery? Um, the market hasn't really yet shaken out on that. But uh, uh, let's say between $3,000 and $7,000 to replace the battery. Now, you know, that's not necessarily terrible because if you've not had much in the way of repair bills up till then, then, um, then you know, okay not not so terrible but uh, uh i'm just aware that i'm recording this in 2020 the batteries had eight-year warranties they really started moving these cars in 2012 so uh, here we are I'm, I'm i'm seeing you know the bill the bill coming due um is the shanghai factory going to be successful are the chinese going to allow him to sell as many cars as he wants to sell in China. Who knows all of these sorts of things? But <clears throat> this is just by way of explanation that I'm not a I'm not a hater. I'm not a hater on Tesla, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not um, uh, negative on on technology and progress. I just think the uh, 
the stock is hugely overvalued. Well, to be to be precise, what is the um, the value of Tesla stock? Well, uh, today, right now, you know, somewhere north of five hundred dollars. It's whatever you can sell it for. Call up your broker and ask him to sell your Tesla stock. You'll know very quickly what it's worth. That's what it's worth. But uh, is it a good and safe longer term investment? Uh, there, I don't believe it is. Uh, I I don't believe so for the reasons I've told you. So in that case, I ask you, am I really saying that I'm smarter than all the people who are investing in Tesla and thereby driving up the stock price? Am I smarter than that? Of course not. Many of them are going to make serious money on the increase in the stock price. They're going to ride it up for a period of time and sell it. Others are investing for the longer term and indeed are are planning on keeping it and the stock continuing to rise and eventually paying dividends as uh, Tesla starts producing reliable profits. Uh, But why then this big difference of opinion? Well, because... I'm recognizing that there are other reasons than purely financial. In other words, people succumb to a form of mass hysteria. Let me take you back, if I can, to about 2003, when a beautiful young blonde woman, I think she might have been about 19 or something at that point, Um, a student at Stanford University, started a blood testing company called Theranos. And because the, the narrative was so appealing, it was beyond cool. The idea of a female Steve Jobs... Um, you know, jeans, black turtleneck sweater, blonde mane cascading down her neck. And the idea that this was going to show once and for all that women were going to be just as effective as guys in high tech. Finally, we were overcoming months, if not years, if not decades of acculturation that told women that they can't do science, technology, engineering, math. Well, now Elizabeth Holmes is showing that it can be done, and this is going to open up a wonderful new future. And so investing in Theranos was about so much more than how much money they were going to make out of it. George Shultz, former Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, were just a few of the big names who poured in $700 million. (laughs) 0.7 of a billion dollars is what there was. Uh, All of it gone. And by uh, uh, 15 years later, 2015, it began to go... 2015, the Wall Street Journal started running articles uh, by an investigative reporter, and eventually another uh, two or three years after that, it was all over. There was nothing left. The company was finished and done. It turned out to have been uh, basically uh, a hoax. You know, whether Elizabeth Holmes believed in it or not herself, who knows? But emotion played a huge role in that uh, company's saga, and emotions 
play a huge role in money in general. Obviously, right? You didn't need me to tell you that. That part of how the world really works, you know already. And so um, investing in Tesla is just cool. Investing in Theranos was just cool. And people get really into that, and it is possible to have your common sense blinded by those emotional aspects. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes was cool, and investing with her was just really cool. Elon Musk is really cool. Owning stock in Tesla gives you an edge at your next party or your next social gathering. It's got real value. Maybe not lasting value, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about emotional value. Owning stock in the Ford Motor Company has absolutely no pizzazz to it at all. It does pay dividends every single quarter, 19 cents on the share, quarter after quarter after quarter. Tesla has paid zero dividends, but it doesn't matter because people are individuals and Everybody has their own unique set of priorities. Everybody has their own desires. And people who are investing in Tesla or who are invest who invested in Theranos, and I'm not saying they're the same, by the way. Uh, my only point is that emotions play a huge role and people act on emotions just as much as they do on common sense, if not more so. And emotions easily blind common sense, very easily indeed. Um, there is a privately held company based out of San Francisco called Bechtel. Uh, you cannot buy into it. It's privately owned by the Bechtel family. The CEO has always been uh, a scion of the Bechtel family. I think the business has to be close to 100 years old. And uh, they... Um, they know how to build nuclear power stations. I wish they'd be able to build a few more in America. They built pretty much not all, but they built a good proportion of America's nuclear stations, and they build a lot overseas. They do massive construction, airport extensions, uh, land reclamation. They, it's a huge company. Now, yeah, it would be nice to be able to invest in that, but uh, it's not publicly traded. You can't do that. Um how about you could invest, and I'm just being silly here, you can't invest in global warming or in climate change, but if you could, it would be great because there is mass hysteria about that at the moment. You see what I'm talking about? There's mass hysteria in the sense that everybody believes in climate change. That is their huge, big thing. Well, shouldn't they? Well, of course. Didn't you hear that 97% of climate scientists agree? Right? Didn't you hear uh, President Obama at one point made it very clear? Uh, in fact, on Twitter, President Obama said, 97% of scientists agree climate change is real, man-made, and dangerous. Right? Uh, John Kerry um, tried the same thing. He, um, he was trying to tell the, the developing world, Africa, parts of Asia, they mustn't start with fossil fuels. They must use wind and solar. And, uh, and he said, let there be no doubt in anybody's mind that the science is absolutely certain. 
97% of climate scientists have confirmed that climate change is happening and that human activity is responsible. They all agree that if we, if we continue to go down the same path that we are going down today, the world as we know it will change, and it will change dramatically for the worse. Um, basically, John Kerry had 97% of scientists agreeing to what every one of them to agree. Um, now, what is it that 97% of scientists agree on? Well, actually, nothing. However, 97% of climate scientists. Now, that's a very different story because climate science is a new made-up field are built around this whole area of climate change. You might have thought climate scientists are like super sophisticated meteorologists who once and for all are going to be able to reliably tell us if we can barbecue this weekend or if we can go skiing next weekend. No, climate scientists have nothing to do with that. They only have to do with climate change. So in other words, you've got to understand, if you are hired as a climate scientist and the entire mood and culture of your university department is in favor of climate change, then I think it's pretty clear which direction you're going to go. But it's actually even more complicated than that. The scientists, the 97% of climate scientists, not of scientists, only of climate scientists, um, they didn't even say that. So, how do we know that 97% of climate scientists agree on anything? Like, how did anyone ever establish that? So um, the, the truth is, by the way, that anybody who tells you, oh, 97% of scientists, they don't have the faintest idea of how this was ever found out. First of all, correct them and say it's not 97% of scientists. Uh, geologists don't agree. Geographers don't agree. Uh, astrophysicists don't agree. Only climate scientists and uh, how do how does this get established? Well, it's it's kind of interesting. You see, uh, the way it works is that somebody who is interested in this question reviews a lot of scholarly papers, and then he arranges them in two piles. One of the piles is the pile that shows the papers that agree with a certain position, and the other pile are the papers that disagree. Now, in the case of 97% of climate scientists agreeing that human beings are the main cause of warnings, it's not true of warming. The, the researchers um, were, I mean, they were guilty of, at, at best, egregiously unscientific dishonesty, and at worst, a, a deliberate misleading. Uh, one, of the, one of the papers published um, that is one of those that was put in the pile that agrees with the 97% claim uh, is authored by a guy called John Cook and um, uh, he speaks uh, uh, he speaks about uh, uh, all the predictions of catastrophic climate change um, and so if you want a summary of, of Cook's paper published in 2013 over 97% of papers he surveyed endorsed the view that the Earth is warming up and human emissions of greenhouse gases are the main cause. This is a fairly clear statement, isn't it? 97% of the papers he surveyed endorsed the view that man-made greenhouse gases were the main cause um, 
meaning in at least 50% or more. Uh, but even a quick scan of the paper reveals that this isn't the case. This guy, John Cook, is able to demonstrate that only a tiny handful of the papers he studied actually endorse the view that the Earth is warming up and human emissions of greenhouse gases are the main cause. This would be an explicit endorsement with quantification, meaning 50% or more. The problem is that only a tiny percentage of the papers fall into that category. Um, about 1.5% actually stated what he said, 97%. In other words, the, the main source for this 97% of climate scientists, not all scientists, climate scientists, is this guy John Cook. Turns out, oh, and, he's, and his stated position was they endorse the view that the earth is warming up because of human emission of greenhouse gas. Turns out about 1.5%, not 97%, 1.5% of the papers he surveyed actually showed that. Well, then how did he have the audacity to say 97%? Well, he wanted to show a high percentage, so he created a category called explicit endorsement without quantification. So that is, in the papers that he studied, he's now looking to see whether they say some heating uh, could be due to human uh, emissions. And it could be 1% responsibility, 50%, 100% caused by man, but it could be 1%. He also created a category called implicit endorsement for papers that imply but don't say that there is some man-made global warming and do not quantify it at all. In other words, he created two categories that he labeled as endorsing his view in a way they actually don't do at all. The 97% claim of climate scientists, it is a deliberate misrepresentation, and it was designed to intimidate the public and mislead us. Um, numerous of, many of the scientists whose papers were classified by Cook protested. Nobody tells you about this. But uh, all of the stuff easily, you can do the research as easily as I could and did. Um, uh, one guy uh, called Dr. Richard Toll complained bitterly. He said, Cook's survey included 10 of my 122 papers on the subject. Uh, half of them were rated incorrectly. Um, and four of them were rated as endorsed rather than neutral. In other words, he mislabeled these uh, uh, these papers. Dr. Craig Idso says, that is not an accurate representation of my paper. Dr. Nir Shaviv, nope, it is not an accurate representation. Dr. Nicola Scafetta, uh, Cook and others in 2013 is based on a straw man argument. So just please bear in mind, uh, you keep hearing 97% of scientists, like President Obama said, no climate scientists and the 97 percent is based on a crude manipulation of the data which simply doesn't withstand any scrutiny at all and the scientists themselves tossed out john cook's work but nonetheless the 97 percent remains because of mass hysteria every body wants to believe in a, a climate change global warming uh, reasons for that I uh, have done that on a previous show, but just in brief, some of the reasons. 
And number one, people feel comfortable with government in charge. In other words, one of the deals you make with your society is freedom or security. You have to decide you want freedom or security. And um, uh, people on the left tend to go for security. And security means that you're basically handing over responsibility to government. And it's nice to have something that justifies huge government involvement. That's part of it. Another part of it is that by its very nature, a religious outlook tends to be positive about the future, right? The future is messianic. The future is God's glorious day in his time. Uh, the future is restoration of the dead. Uh, it's all good news coming down the pike. But by contrast, and obviously, the long-term view of the left is absolute calamity and disaster coming down the pike. Years ago, it was going to be a nuclear winter. Then it was acid rain. And then it was global warming. And then when winter came and people wished for a little more global warming, they called it climate change. And today, wrongly, people believe that Australian and California uh, wildfires are all started because of global warming. No, they're actually started, a lot of them are started because of arson. And I won't mention the demographic group that has been found to be responsible in some of the cases. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the appeal is very strong because it suggests that we do need big government in order to take care of these big, big problems. Look, uh, there, there is such a thing as the wisdom of the many or the wisdom of the market. There is, but time plays a role. You cannot say wisdom of the many at any particular instant in history or any particular moment in time. Uh, what you, you can say is that over a period of time, a large number of people, and here is the key thing. It's not just a large number of people giving their opinion because that's just the ignorant misleading the stupid. Uh, it's got to be people who putting their money where their mouth is. And that's one of the reasons that the uh, various, and this I believe is illegal in the United States, but in other countries of the world, they have uh, bets. You can put a money bet up on political outcomes, on election outcomes. And generally speaking, those have tended to be fairly reliable. Why? Because it's a lot of people and they're putting money in and so they really do care about it in that sense the stock market is also a good indicator of what's going on in the in the country but over a period of time and it's the market as a whole also as opposed to any one particular stock such as theranos or uh, or um, uh, elon musk's tesla where emotional and rather than calling it emotional i'm actually going to call it mass hysteria uh, mass hysteria movements um, are, are real human phenomena i'm um, you know obviously the uh, the salem witch trials in the 1600s but you don't have to go back that far you don't have to go back to 1350 where during the black death the plague in europe uh, mass hysteria spread that Jews were poisoning the wells and um, huge numbers even huge numbers even for those days uh, 500 communities 
500 Jewish communities in Germany and France, over 500, were literally massacred. The blood flowed in the streets. Every man, woman, and child of the Jewish communities was wiped out. Uh, 1348, 49, 1350, halfway through the 14th century. Uh, Why? What was going on? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, Hygiene standards at that period in France and Germany were, shall we say, um, somewhat uh, basic, perhaps. And a lot in the Jewish religion focuses on using water for cleanliness. Uh, you, You have to wash your hands Uh, every morning. You have to wash your hands before you eat. Uh, You have to wash your hands when you come out of the bathroom. Today, that's taken as as standard, but it didn't always used to be. And and by the way, many, many other examples of uh, where Jewish, uh, ritualistic Jewish lifestyle leads towards uh, better hygiene outcomes. And so not surprisingly, uh, Jews appeared to be um, impervious they, they got the plague, they did, but at a much lesser rate than the general population. And so they assumed, okay, the Jews are doing it, the spread like wildfire, and the mobs poured out into the streets wherever there were Jews and, uh, and, and cut their throats and killed them. So mass hysteria, it really, really does happen. Um, the, um, back in the 1980s, and by the way, if you're interested in, in mass hysteria, you really should go back and look at the daycare sex abuse hysteria. This was a panic in California and Massachusetts um, that resulted in innocent human beings, innocent adults being incarcerated for many, many, many years because there was a mass hysteria. And uh, the, it was the the children, little little kids, little daycare and uh, and uh, uh, kindergarten toddlers, uh, came into court, and psychologists had prepped them with memory recovery techniques, which have subsequently been shown to be all bogus. And these little kids started talking about. Uh, uh, clowns with knives who who cut them, and dungeons under the schools. Now, none of this was proven. There was nothing. There was absolutely no evidence. There was no medical evidence, and the parents went into hysteria. The uh, For political reasons, prosecutors in both California and Massachusetts went into hysteria, and uh, people were thrown in jail. Nothing happened. But there it is. Uh, Mass hysteria is real, and it is very, very dangerous. How about the Me Too movement? Um, Okay, so look, um, do I need to issue a caveat, you know, saying that rape is wrong and should be severely punished? Obviously, right? No question about it. Uh, However, when the climate says that women are believed when they make an allegation, and when the climate then leads to companies making significant financial payouts to women who accused men, um, is it not logical to suppose that in many of these cases, these are women and, I mean, Yes, what were you doing? 
in a guy's hotel room at night. What, what did you go for there in the first place? Now, that doesn't give anyone the right to rape, but it does mean that a significant proportion of those women went into this consensually, had regrets afterwards, and then claimed rape, particularly when financial considerations played such a large part. How many? I don't know. Maybe just a few, maybe a lot. But some, no question about it, because an atmosphere of mass hysteria took over the country. Future historians are going to be astounded at the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh when Christine Blassie Ford accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when he was a teenager. No evidence, no corroboration, nothing. And yet mass hysteria took over. Um, Climate change is mass hysteria. And socialism is mass hysteria. In other words, there is growing mass hysteria about the evils of inequality. Now, people speak about this without ever having studied the economics on it. But since some people have more than others, well, this obviously is evidence of serious systemic failure in capitalism. And a mass hysteria has taken over our entire society. Clearly, in some strange, mysterious way, secular fundamentalism, the state religion of the United States of America, secular fundamentalism promotes in its followers and devotees a deep conviction that we are living in terrible times and worse is coming down the road. That is, it's, it's an article of faith on the left. There really is no other way to explain the period in which we're living where people are enjoying unprecedented levels of comfort, even luxury, and yet absolutely convinced that socialism is the answer. People who have never lived under socialism, people who know very little about socialism, are busy, busily, aggressively, and actively promoting the adoption of socialism in countries like the Western Europe and the United States. It's weird. Climate change is like that as well. A desperate, deep, unshakable resolve to believe that disaster is coming down the road. I found uh, an article written in the Guardian newspaper. This is a very long established newspaper in the United Kingdom. Years ago, it used to be known as the Manchester Guardian, but as it became increasingly more important and influential, uh, it was just called the Guardian, and that's what it's called today. And I want to read this to you, and I, I'm telling you exactly where to find it, because what I'm telling you is so unbelievable that some of you are going to want to go and get it yourself. It was published February 21, 2004. Got it? The year 2004, February 21st, and uh, published in The Guardian, 
uh, the United Kingdom newspaper. Um, so here, here it says, major European cities will be sunk beneath rising seas as Britain is plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020. So they were looking 16 years ahead from February 2004. And uh, at the time I'm recording this, we're late January 2020. They say by 2020, Britain will be plunged into a Siberian uh, climate. Nuclear conflict, mega droughts, famine and widespread rioting will erupt across the world. Climate change should be elevated beyond a scientific debate to a United States national security concern. This is by, by the way, uh, a guy who is a CIA consultant and former head of planning at Royal Dutch Shell Group and the Global Business Network. Uh, these guys published in the Manchester, in the Guardian, that the planet is already carrying a higher population than it can sustain. By 2020, catastrophic shortages of water and energy supply will become increasingly harder to overcome, and this will plunge the planet into war. The potential ramifications of rapid climate change will create global chaos. He said this is depressing stuff. It is a national security threat that is unique because there is no enemy to point your guns at and we have no control over the threat. It was already maybe too late to prevent a disaster happening. We don't know exactly where we are in the process. It could start tomorrow and we would not know for another five years, he said. But one thing is for sure, and that is by 2020, chaos and death by famine by war and by rioting, because of global climate change. All right, it's it's pretty strong stuff. It hasn't come to pass. I've shown you in the past predictions of climate change-induced calamity published in the 60s and 70s by Paul Ehrlich, who remains a respected professor in an American university, None of his predictions came to pass. Doesn't make any difference. When you're dealing with mass hysteria, nothing makes any difference. It's mass hysteria. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Now, before I go on explaining the, uh, the allure of socialism and how it's spreading, and what the only possible antidote is, I want to direct your attention, and you can make a note of this, or you can just remember it, or you can look at it now. I want to direct you to something on my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. But what you want to do is enter rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass, one word, M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S, masterclass, uh, is the end of the URL. So it's rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass. 
and it's not something I've told you about before because it's something brand new. Okay, so a few years back, before 2001, before 9-11, before Islam became what we now know it to be, and before it was on our consciousness, I wrote a book called America's Real War. A Jewish rabbi insists that Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival. It answers a number of questions, including such things as, why are Jews so disproportionately liberal? So, for instance, if you've ever wondered why Adam Schiff and uh, Nadler and Schumer and other Jews are so prominent in the democratically driven impeachment process, which God willing will not only fail, but uh, actually help the president, um, who, by the way, I think he is the first president in many, many years to speak at a pro-life rally on the um, um, 53rd anniversary of the Roe v. Wade event. I think President Trump is the first president in many years uh, to speak at that event. So um, at any rate, uh, what you will see if you go to rabbidaniellappin.com masterclass is you'll see that we are starting work on updating this book, America's Real War. It needs to talk about Islam. It needs to explain things such as how come there is this weird alliance between the American left and radical Islam. The American left actually believes, they really do, they believe that Christianity poses a greater threat to democracy in America than Islam does. So there's something weird going on there. And it has to explain the ongoing polarization in America that today is so much more than it was when I wrote the book just before 9-11. So rather than just do this, I believe that today we have a community. There is a very large number of people who read our teachings, who listen to this show, and we've decided to invite a certain number of you to participate in a 10-session online program where you will collaborate with Susan and myself in rewriting the book. You will talk about things that are missing, things that are have to be updated, things that have to be explained, and, um, and you will then be acknowledged in the new edition of the book. And so all of this is explained beautifully at rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass. And, um, and one of the first questions we're going to ask you is, which of these two ideas most accurately reflects your thinking? Number one, Judeo-Christian Bible-based values are primitive obstructions to progress. Or number two, Judeo-Christian Bible-based values are vital for our nation's survival. Well, you obviously, as a listener of the show, you know where I come down on those two questions, but that's really what this book is all about. And um, we would like to invite you to join us for an online program on which we will work our way through the original book and we will note your observations, your questions, your thoughts, and your suggestions for uh, ideas on topics for additional material. 
you will help us determine which issues need more explanation, and the questions you have will shape the new edition of that book. So uh, make a note, The take a look, it's a, it's a terrific uh, page you'll go to, rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass. I think you're going to find it very interesting indeed. So, okay, so now we're going to go back to the sinister and fatal allure of socialism. Here is a very basic, a very fundamental, a very critical question. Does one human being have any rights to the property of another human being? And even more fundamentally than that, does any human being have the right to any property in the first place? Well, not surprisingly, uh, socialism, which is a secular worldview, uh, takes the position that fundamentally uh, people do not have the right to own property. The government owns every pro- all property, the state, the zookeeper, the farmer, the people in charge, the nomenclatura. Why? Well, remember that the basics of socialism are that we are here on this planet not because the good Lord created us in his image and put us here. No, we're here because of a lengthy process of unaided, random, materialistic evolution, just like horses, kangaroos, camels, and cows. And that makes us nothing but sophisticated animals. Now, ownership of property is not something that animals do. There is a territorial instinct that is true, but it's a territorial instinct on an animal level, which simply means that they don't tolerate any other animal of their same species coming in there. In other words, uh, in the African felt, lions do mark out territory. Uh, it's uh, you know a few square miles for a lion pride, and they will object to other lions from other prides coming into that territory. But they have no problem with elephants coming in. And if elephants come in and push down trees and drink water and eat bushes, that's fine. Giraffes coming in there, no problem. Only lions. And so we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the animals are functioning in terms of property ownership. It isn't that at all. Uh, For me, when uh, I own a piece of property, Not only do I want to keep out other people from coming in and digging holes or breaking trees, uh, I would do the same to any other species as well. I put a fence around it to keep everybody out to mark it as my property. And so this very basic idea of ownership is fundamentally a religious idea. It's an idea that springs from the Bible and from Judeo-Christian thinking. Not surprisingly, when you look at atheistic regimes, ownership by individuals virtually doesn't exist or it's made uh, to operate within very limited confines. That is the, the basic concept there. Now, by contrast, a Bible-based worldview is very big on ownership. 
so much so that ancient Jewish wisdom stresses that God doesn't like anything to be ownerless. Now, just a warning here. When you hear that something is owned by the public, you should be very distrustful because what that really means is that it's owned by the state. It's owned by government. And so by some curious anomalies, and there's some reasons for it, uh, but it's nonetheless a problematic thing. Large tracts of land out west in the United States on the west side of the country are owned by the government. When I say large tracts of land, more than half of Nevada, more than half of Utah, uh, a great deal of Idaho, you know, millions upon millions of acres, and um, owned by the government. And of course, it's a, well, it's publicly owned. No, distrust the use of the word publicly owned. Things are either owned by people or they're not owned at all. And that's what economists mean when they speak about the tragedy of the commons. The commons means things that the public owns. And guess what? Nobody looks after the things that the public owns, right? Have you ever compared what a FedEx office looks like when compared to what a United States Postal Service office looks like? There's a reason for that. And that is because in the FedEx office, it is owned, the FedEx is owned by somebody and they care about it. In the post office, the post office property is owned by the public. And that's just another way of saying nobody cares about it. So uh, ownership is a holy concept. It's something that uh, God smiles upon. And that's why fairly early in the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 23, uh, Abraham, the first Hebrew, sets about buying land. And you can tell from the conversation with the sellers that the entire concept is as alien to them as the concept was to the Indians that the pilgrims tried to purchase land from uh, back in the 17th century in the United States, or what was then the colony. Uh, yeah, because people with no uh, relationship to the biblical way of looking at things never had the concept of people owning land. From where would they get it? right? Animals don't own land. It's not ownership of land is a weird concept. If anything, you'd say the land owes you, you know, I'm, I'm a, a son of the South. The land owns you. And then finally, at the end of your time on this planet, it claims you back in burial. That would be the, the, the very natural way of looking at this. But the reality is, no, the reality is that we actually are supposed to own things. Life works better that way. Things get looked after. And here's an interesting thing, by the way. Again, uh, in ancient Jewish wisdom, the discussion, based on some Bible verses, uh, studies the question of, what happens if I find an object in the street? May I keep it or leave it alone? No, that's not an option. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, the only options are pick it up and make it yours or go and find its owner. But you can't because God 
disdains ownerless property. In other words, uh, this is why you will find in the Bible a very, in the five books of Moses, a very specific instruction to try and return lost objects to their owners. Because if the owner loses it and then um, gives up on ever thinking he'll see it again, that object is then ownerless. And ownerless isn't good. We Things should be owned by people, not by entities, not by governments. They should be owned by people. Now, a corporation owns something like FedEx. That's fine because the corporation is owned by its shareholders. But, of course, that idea is very much under assault right now, along with the general assault on the idea of property and the uh, promotion of the idea of socialism, because socialism is very much on this idea that people shouldn't own anything, and uh, ideally the government should retain for the public all abilities at creation and distribution of goods and services, and people will contribute according to their ability, and they'll get according to their need, and you're all very familiar with that line of thinking, I'm quite sure. Does anyone else have a right to your property? Absolutely not. Uh, Here's a very important thing to understand. You have an obligation to give charity, but that is not an obligation to give to any specific person. You have to find somebody to receive your charity, and you're grateful to him for receiving it, and he should be very grateful to you for giving it. But nobody can come to you and say, I'm here to pick up my charity. No, I'm going to give charity, just not to you. I'm giving it to somebody else. Nobody has an entitlement to your property. Nobody has a right to your property. Now, that is really important. It's important because the question is, how do you treat somebody who tries to remove your property from you by force? And here is, again, an amazing contrast between ancient Jewish wisdom's take on biblical law and what is happening in the United States of America. It's happening elsewhere in the world as well, but uh, I'm most familiar on a day-to-day basis with things that are happening here. So, for instance, California passed uh, Proposition 47, which basically decriminalized property crime. Uh, It changed the stealing of property from from a felony to a misdemeanor, which is basically less than a slap on the wrist. Nobody cares about that. And so uh, in California today, when they passed this, they passed it that any theft of less than, I I think it was $995, just under $1,000, is nothing. Slap on the wrist. You 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 don't go to nothing at all. So you can actually steal $990 every day of the week. And it's fine as long as each individual act of theft is less than $995, no problem. Well, you won't be shocked to hear that there was a huge surge in property crime and other kinds of crime as well, which brings me to a very important point. And that is, again, a principle in ancient Jewish wisdom, which is that if you don't care about property and all you care about is personal 
crime, crimes against people, violence. You care about violence, but you don't care about property. Your society will be beset by crimes of both violence and property. But if you're very strict on crimes of property as well as of violence, then you will be a tranquil society without crimes of violence and without crimes of property. In other words, a secularized country and government uh, tends to, first of all, take away the death penalty. So ultimately, there is finally, um, in the deeper sense, no recourse against violence. And then they start reducing the um, criminal impact of property crime as well. So not surprisingly, uh, law-abiding citizens find themselves the victims of uh, vicious predators without a conscience. That's what happens. In the correct system, uh, property crime should be treated very strongly. And so sure enough, in uh, the book of Exodus chapter 22, it speaks about the fact that a person who comes to steal your property uh, can be killed. Now, there are various discussions, there are complications. It's not, it's not so simple. Uh, the questions are what are his motivations, etc., etc. But the bottom line is that we treat crimes against property terribly seriously. It's a little bit like the old broken window theory, which is that uh, when vandals break the windows in a, a building, if you don't fix them, they'll come back the next day and do even more. But if you keep fixing it, the uh, the picture eventually becomes clear that there's a human being who owns this and cares about it. That's, that's the concept. And so for that reason, we do, uh, in a biblical sense, we do treat property crimes very seriously. Again, it violates the idea that I have a right to my property. It's an exclusive right. And your right to your property is exclusive. Nobody has any rights to your property. Now, what is the logic for allowing you to kill uh, somebody who is going to take away your property? Well, it's, it's very simple and very true. Think about this for a moment. If, uh, if you're on the um, uh, 50th floor of the Empire State Building and a man jumps off the 75th floor, and as he passes your window, flying down towards the sidewalk, you pull out your three fifty-seven Magnum and put a bullet through his head, killing him. Are you liable to be charged with murder or not? The answer to anybody who thinks about it, you don't need to know the law, you just have to think about it. Obviously, the person has to be charged with murder. His defense is, hey, I only carved off about two seconds of his life because he was going to die in a few moments anyway. Answer is, that's none of your business. You are taking away, it doesn't matter how much of his life you're taking away. When you take away a part of a person's life, you are liable for murder, period. Okay, now think about what a thief or a robber does. He's taking your property. Now, as a law-abiding person, you acquired that property how? by the expenditure of your time. You worked to make the money to buy that object. Um, that was time. Do you see that the robber is taking away days of your life? That's what's going on. And that's why he who deprives you 
of your property is also assaulting your life he's taking away a certain amount of your life as well because you now have to go and spend that time working to replace the object or to pay for insurance next time whatever you're going to do but uh, the important thing is to understand that yes uh, protecting property is of crucial importance because yes we do have exclusive right to the property that we own Uh, it goes without saying of course that uh, one of the ten commandments number seven excuse me number eight is not stealing because this is a a very novel idea when you think about it again people if if there's no ownership right people take whatever they want because nobody owns anything and you have a, a set of circumstances that makes it hard for human society to flourish and this is one of the reasons we know that one of the uh, powerful causes for the emergence of Western civilization to essentially dominate the world was because of its adoption of biblical principles, such as stealing is a really big problem. Taking somebody else's property is not a small matter. This is not like Proposition 47 in California. Oh, let's downplay property crimes. After all, there was no violence. You'll end up having to deal with violence and property crime. But if you're strict on property crime, then you create a law-abiding atmosphere, and the benefit uh, extends all around. So not only is the uh, is the Eighth Commandment strong on, uh, on uh, property rights, but it's interesting that um, there's a story in the first book of Kings, chapter 21, where uh, wicked King Ahab said to a guy called Navot, I like your vineyard. You've got a beautiful vineyard. I, I want it. It's next to my palace. I'd like to go and get it. So I'll give you another vineyard in exchange, or I'll pay you money. Navot says, I'm sorry, can't do it. This vineyard is the legacy of my parents and my great-grandparents. I, this, it's not just any vineyard. This is my vineyard, and I own it, and I love it, and I want it. Ahab um, was sad. He wanted that vineyard. His wicked wife, Je- uh, Jezebel, um, came and, and explained to him, listen, all you've got to do is have Navot killed, and then you can take his vineyard, which he goes ahead and does. And um, so uh, uh, Navot, excuse me, uh, Ahab is, is happy. He now owns Navot's vineyard, and um, Elijah the prophet comes to King Ahab and says to him, um, let me translate from the Hebrew, thus saith the Lord, um, not only did you murder, but you also seized property. Which is a very interesting thing, because you would have thought that when somebody is being charged with murder, right, they don't then also charge him with property damage. For instance, uh, let's imagine... Tom shoots Jerry dead, and Jerry's heirs uh, come to Tom and say, we'd like you to pay uh, for the cost of his suit. You put a hole through his jacket, and you made that jacket valueless. All right. I, well, civilly, I'm not sure about, but at least criminally, the, the, uh, the state, the police, the prosecutors, they don't say, listen, Tom, we're uh, charging you with murder and with property damage. All right, that's not usually the way it works. And yet here, uh, 
uh, Elijah the prophet says to Ahab, two things, you stole property and you murdered. They are both equally serious. And so this is a hugely important biblical innovation for civilized society. Really, really valuable, really, really important, and uh, helpful in understanding the clash between uh, a biblical system of economics and, uh, and socialism, which doesn't recognize the right to property in the first place. And so when socialists um, explain that, yes, you know, you didn't, you didn't make that. No, no. It's all of these things are attempts to justify taking away property of, of uh, an individual. Um, taxation is a special category. Uh, it is also limited. In other words, uh, in the Bible, we see that um, when Israel is warned about the dangers of government, they are said, you've got to be careful. Uh, a king might take as much as 10% of your income as a tax. And so we, we do understand that when most people in the United States today pay an aggregate of close to 50% of their income uh, to taxes, state tax, property tax, uh, per sales tax, income tax, and a variety of other taxes, it does add up to close to 50% for many, many, many people. You don't have to be in, in a very high bracket for your total aggregate tax bill to be about 50% of what you, uh, what you earn. Uh, this is not seen as a good thing at all. It's extremely problematic. So that's why it is that we find going on right now the most amazing assaults against uh, shareholder ownership of companies. Uh, we, we've got it from Lawrence Fink, the head of BlackRock uh, Financial. We've got it from the uh, head of PayPal. Uh, and I've just seen it. in. We've also got it from the Business Roundtable uh, and a number of other prestigious organizations. All of them, just in the last year or so, uh, been this, been pushing this idea that shareholders don't really own their corporation. One of the Democratic candidates for the president, a woman, Elizabeth Warren, uh, takes exactly the same position, that um, it's wrong to suppose that shareholders own their companies. And all of this flows from this basic conflict over the morality of ownership where a biblical worldview says ownership is, is not only moral, but it's mandatory morality. In other words, uh, we don't like anything not being owned by people. Minimize the commons. Minimize publicly owned stuff. Things work best when they're owned by humans, by individuals, by people. And, um, and so uh, socialism works on this idea since they it flows from this fundamental concept that people when you get right down to it are not that different from animals and since ownership is a nonsensical idea in the context of animals it should be a similarly nonsensical idea in the context of people and it's much better if a central authority holds the property on behalf of the people and there you've got the moral foundation of the philosophical foundation of socialism. 
and that is exactly how it works, sadly, tragically, and horrifyingly. But uh, as you begin to secularize a society, as started in the United States, and you know by now when that was, I mean, I, I say 1962, you could say 63, you could say 61 or, or 60, it, but it's somewhere in that period when the serious secularization of America began. It's not an accident that socialism began to become increasingly acceptable to the point now where it's, it's seen almost as fashionable to be a socialist. And the problems that can flow from this are huge and completely immeasurable. Well, uh, that is probably about as far as we'll go for today's show, although there is uh, so much more. But I know I've left you with quite a lot of things that some of you may want to dig into more deeply. You may want to research them. You may want to find out more. Check about the uh, the Business Roundtables assault. That was in the middle of 2019. The Business Roundtable of the United States uh, did come out with this amazing declaration that uh, from now onwards, we're going to understand that ownership of a corporation isn't just the shareholders. Yes, it actually is just the shareholders. But, um, and again, the statement of uh, the head of PayPal, also fascinating. His name is uh, Dan Shulman. Yeah, Jewish, I'm afraid. Um, wish it weren't so, but it is. And he uh, spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, by the way, Greta Thunberg, there again for the second time in January 2019. She was there. She's again there January 2020. And uh, these foolish um, people allow themselves, adults, allow themselves to be scolded by a schoolgirl. Um, and again, what is it? It's all part of the uh, mass hysteria of climate change. Greta Thunberg, speaking in the World Economic Forum in January 2020, sounded exactly the same as that uh, article from The Guardian in England from February 21, 2004. Uh, it's too late. Massive uh, problems are arriving. Anyway, enough of that. But uh, back to Dan Shulman. He's the chief CEO of PayPal, a great company, and um, he uh, spoke at the DeVos conference, and he sees, uh, from my perspective, said Dan Shulman, and not everyone agrees with this, yeah, you can say that again, I'll say, people can debate, but we each have multiple constituents we serve, employees, our customers, regulators, and shareholders. Our number one constituency is our employees. Excuse me? Really? So it's employee-owned companies? No, it's actually shareholder-owned companies. And, and that isn't going to change. And Dan Shulman saying it, not going to make any difference. Lawrence Fink of BlackRock saying that from now onwards, they're only going to invest in companies that don't put shareholder interests at the forefront. Folks, it's as well to be aware of this, right? You'd be, you'd be well advised to put your money in companies that do put shareholder interests at the forefront. Now, obviously, it is looking after your shareholders to also look after your employees because 
employee churn, having a lot of new people come and people leave, that's a very expensive way of running a company. You want to retain good employees. So, I mean, that's pretty all obvious. Everything comes comfortably under the rubric. Take care of your owners and everything else will fall into place. But now what we're getting from this growing trendy socialism is this increasingly popular idea that owners are bad or they don't exist or they're not real or it's illusory. As one of the presidents once said, you didn't make that right. Of course, because ownership is suspect in the new world of secular fundamentalism, where socialism is the economic system of choice. Huge problems, but important to be aware of this, because if you understand how the world really works, then you stand a pretty good chance of um, being able to take care of your business, your family, your interests. Uh, interestingly enough, by the way, this year in divorce, and I'll, I'll leave it with this, uh, in January 2020, the World Economic Forum in Davos had uh, an unusual speaker. He was Professor David Miller from Princeton University, and um, he spoke on the Bible in building trust. He said uh, he's going to teach on 12 Abrahamic traditions, Abraham, right? Abrahamic tra traditions uh, having to do with trust. Uh, just interesting. It, it may be the first time that, <laughs> that the Bible has ever been invoked at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, it's, um, it's hilarious. I mean, in January 2020, the current uh, year, uh, there are things that are so ridiculous about a gathering of these hugely wealthy, influential, and very self-important people. Um, they're about, they counted 100 billionaires in January 2020, where I'm currently recording this. Uh, they, uh, th this year, uh, they, they decided to reduce the carbon footprint of the Davos gathering, the World Economic Forum. So they're not going to print paper maps of the town like they've done every year up till now. They're going to save the paper. And, you know, it's so funny because you can just imagine the size of relief from the nearby alpine glaciers. Oh, goody, we're being saved because all the billionaires at the World Economic Conference are not going to get paper maps. Really? I mean... Are smart people gulled by this kind of flummery? Well, I'm afraid they are because it's called mass hysteria. But the happy warriors who listen to this show are absolutely not tennis balls that float down the gutter of life. And so you are not subject to these mass hysteria waves that sweeps society from time to time. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, also, please feed in rabbidaniellappin.com forward slash masterclass, one word, M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S, -S, masterclass, uh, one word. And uh, take a look at this uh, 10-session online program we're going to be doing where we're going to all together, by committee, 
<laughs> that's a joke, rewrite America's Real War for uh, reissuing, for publishing the second edition. Uh, is it the third edition now? I've got to check up. It, it's It's been a hugely successful book, and I hope that a reissue of an updated America's Real War will be even more successful, particularly because it's going to have not just my ideas, going to have your ideas as well, those of you who want to join in and participate in that. So Rabbi Daniel Lappin, masterclass, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin.com forward slash masterclass and you'll be able to see exactly what it's all about. Uh, you're also invited to visit the store at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, find something that you might have your life enhanced by. And finally, you might also feel yourself uh, pulled towards making a gift to support the work of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. AAJC.org, www.aajc.org. Okay, that uh, takes us to the end of all the time that I can reasonably claim from you today. I thank you so much for being part of the show. As always, I thank you for promoting the show. A whole bunch of you are doing a great job on that because the listenership and the downloading continues to climb very gratifyingly. It makes me very excited. I continue to add pins on my world map, as I hear from many of you telling me where you are listening from. I love that, and I appreciate that very much indeed. So until we are together next week, I want to wish you a week of very good times, really good times, faith-wise, family-wise, finance-wise, and friendship-wise. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.